Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. In 2018, the Ashner Accountable Care Network was able to reduce expected costs of care by more than $12.78 million for its Medicare beneficiaries, and it increased its savings 12% over 2017. This comes amidst research and claims that accountable care organizations, or ACOs, may not be successful at reducing costs while improving outcomes. I'm Laura Jost, the Associate Editorial Director of the American Journal of Managed Care, and today I'm speaking with Dr. David Karmusch, President of the Oshner Health Network and Executive Director of the Oshner Accountable Care Network. He discusses the success of the ACO, what efforts Oshner made to be successful, and how ACOs can get over the learning curve to achieve savings. So what is it about the health of the population you serve with Oshner that made an ACO a good fit for delivering care? Yeah, well, when you think about Louisiana, it's um, it's experienced relatively small population growth, and with the aging demographics uh, of our country, you know, there's just more people who are aging into Medicare. So it's a it's a larger and larger percentage of the of the population. First, second, you know, Louisiana has always been or has been for a while a high cost Medicare uh, state. Medicare spends a lot. Per beneficiary, uh, and especially in the post-acute environment, where I think Medicare maybe spends more money than they actually do uh, for for acute care. So there's a lot of opportunity. And then last, it's unfortunate, but the but the healthcare delivery system in Louisiana is fairly fragmented. Auctioner is certainly the largest and most integrated delivery system uh, within an environment of, of typically um, fragmented providers. Uh, and so I think when you put all of those together, Oxner has been well positioned uh, to be successful from an ACO perspective. And tell me about the savings from 2018 with the ACO. What did you achieve and what outcomes were you seeing for the patients you serve? So we were really excited uh, to uh, report just under $13 million in savings on 24,000 Medicare beneficiaries. And uh, it was up about 12% in savings from 2017, up 81% on a per beneficiary savings uh, basis. So that was that was really gratifying. Uh, and at the same time that we were saving money, we were improving quality. Uh, our quality score uh, was 91.5% or so. So uh, we felt really good that not only were we doing the right thing um, from uh, from a cost perspective, but we were also delivering uh, delivering better quality. And, and when you think about it, you know, we've been on a, a multi-year journey. I think we started our ACO back in 2014, and certainly there's a learning curve, and we've, we've learned along uh, along the way a lot. And certainly we've made investments along the way to help us uh, be successful. Uh, but all of this really starts at the top of our organization where both our board and our CEO believe in population health, believe in value-based payments, I uh, believe both of those align um, incentives for providers and patients. And so, you know, it's it, I'm, I'm fortunate to work in an environment where there's a real a deep understanding of what we're trying to do um, and, and where, you know, our leadership believes uh, that population health is the best way to deliver health care uh, to the people in Louisiana. 
So can you talk to me a little bit about that learning curve? I think a lot of young ACOs starting out or those considering getting into ACOs see and know that there is a learning curve. They might get a little intimidated about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, 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 I know, you know, it's been, it was fortunate to not, you know, have downside financial risk in the early years where you're learning how to receive, um, uh, claims files, uh, from Medicare where you're, where you're learning how to process those, where you're thinking about incentives for providers in your ACO and how to message, uh, population health to them. Uh, when you have to configure electronic medical record and population health tools and build programs around those tools to be more proactive in, in care, uh, all of that takes, you know, vision, it takes time, it takes money and resources, it takes leadership, and it, it's, um, it's not intuitive. You know, it does for many young ACOs, and certainly providers aligned with those ACOs represent a, a departure from how they've conducted business, which was historically reactive, you know, in response to illness and at the, at the need, you know, at the, at the needs of, you know, or as determined by the needs of a patient, not, not anticipating the needs of the patient. So, you know, we, uh, we were fortunate to get into the ACO world at a time where you could, you could learn for a few years. I think obviously now with changes that have come out of CMS, the, you know, the period of time that, that you can sit in that learning curve, uh, uh, is shortened, and, and certainly providers who want to embark on the ACO journey have to learn quicker than we had to learn. But there's also success stories like Auctioner um, and others, many others, who, who can provide somewhat of a roadmap for how, uh, how to uh, get successful uh, more quickly. You had mentioned already that savings were up over 2017. It looks like for the last three years, the Auctioner ACO has reported savings, which is not something all ACOs can say. What are you attributing that success to? Is it just the culture? Is it just that you got over that learning curve quicker? You know, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's probably all of those and other things. It's, it's interesting that, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a narrative out there in the country that hospital-based ACOs uh, can't be successful, that um, physician-only ACOs have had the early success, and I think the data would suggest that has been true. But, you know, we're certainly a hospital-based ACO, and and we have been uh, successful. And I think there's a variety of things. So, first of all, we have a history of managing risk. We had a health plan until the early 2000s that, that we sold, and there, there's still some muscle memory there. So, there's many of our providers um, you know, understand managed care and, and, and risk management. Uh, I mentioned the leadership support and the investments that, that have been made on behalf of, of population health. We can talk a little bit about what some of those might look like. You know, the third is we have a large employed provider group, nearly 1,500 providers now. And, and although that creates some challenges, it does allow us to do things like um, weave value-based incentives into their compensation plan or build uh, EMR capabilities that support, you know, all of these providers um, uh, in a really, re- relatively short order. So we've, we've done a good job of, of building out a single instance of, of uh, Epic EMR and have taken full advantage of all the population health tools that come uh, with that, um, and there's a robust set of tools and analytics that are needed to power uh, success in population health. And then we've built programs. I mean, we've built you know care coordination and case management programs, disease management programs, a, a variety of post-acute initiatives and, and, and palliative care in addition to others. So it takes a, a bit of an army. It takes an investment. It takes 
a belief um, that um, you you can be successful uh, financially despite uh, those investments, and and we've we've done a little bit of all of that. Uh, I would say we're not perfect at any of it, but certainly if you look at where we are today and versus where we were five years ago, I think we've done enough uh, to uh, have been successful over the last three years. Can you talk a little bit about the things you've been doing in the non-hospital setting to provide care and prevent avoidable admissions? Well, I'll give you three examples. Um, The first is in the post-acute uh, space where I mentioned Medicare pays a lot in Louisiana. So the first thing we did was we built an integrated network of partnering post-acute facilities, long-term acute care facilities, inpatient rehabs and SNFs, um, to make sure that we were uh, identifying high-quality, collaborating post-acute facilities uh, and then arming our inpatient case managers and discharge planners with Um, information by which they can educate Medicare beneficiaries and their families. The second thing was um, there's a a lot of abuse in home health um, delivery in Louisiana, and so we built a central clearinghouse for recertification so that our physicians um, have um, uh, some level of review uh, over appropriateness um, at the time that they're recertifying another episode uh, of home health uh, care. And then the last is we had to get back into the skilled nursing facilities with our own physicians and providers uh, to deliver more of the care ourselves. Uh, and so we built out a pretty robust SNFist uh, program. So all of that is in the post-acute space. All of that has led to decreased readmissions and l- shorter length of stay and less expenditures uh, per beneficiary in, in the post-acute world. The second thing was, is reimagining clinic-based care, and we, we built uh, a clinic uh, model that um, takes a physician uh, and, and gives he or she a limited panel of relatively complex high-risk Medicare patients, so uh, 500 patients per physician. We staff that clinic with a nurse practitioner who's able to do home visits, a pharmacist who can do things like pill packing, and medication um, reconciliation uh, and education for patients, and then a social worker to manage all of the social determinant needs. And so we direct kind of patients based on a predictive risk score um, into these clinics that are just suited to take care of of a complex um, um, Medicare-type patient. Those have been very successful at reducing ED visits and admissions and readmissions. And then the third is we've done a lot in the home, uh, a couple programs just to mention. Uh, we've partnered with a, with a New Orleans area startup called Ready Responders, which takes off-duty EMTs and paramedics and can dispatch them on demand via an Uber-like application to the home of a patient who may have a relatively urgent medical need. Uh, and they can assess that patient usually within 10 or 15 minutes of being summoned can connect that patient via telemedicine capability to a nurse practitioner physician and can resolve a lot of relatively low acuity um, uh, care needs in the home without the patient having to uh, to show up in the emergency room. And that, that program has been really successful, and we've expanded that into our Medicare ACO with a waiver that was approved by our board. The other program in the home is really taking nurse practitioners and doing in-home visits within 24 hours of discharge of patients who have a high um, likelihood of being readmitted to the hospital in 30 days. And what we found is that 
versus sending patients to a post-discharge clinic, which required them to travel back to, to one of our facilities. Meeting them in their home was beneficial in that it was easier on the patient, but also allowed us to see the home environment and coordinate care and, and understand uh, maybe broader uh, the set of needs that our patients had. And we saw a significant uh, reduction in uh, readmissions from that program. So those are a variety of examples, everything from post-acute to the home, all of which have, uh, have really contributed to our success. You mentioned telemedicine as part of home care with the off-duty EMTs. In what other ways has the Oshner Accountable Care Network been utilizing digital health to provide care at home? So I think, you know, a couple ways. Number one, um, we have a really robust portal, uh, EMR portal, where our patients are able to, you know, schedule online appointments. And we have more and more of them, even seniors now taking advantage of that. And we see, you know, half the no-show rates to the clinic when patients schedule their own appointments. So we've made, you know, most of our patients available now. I mean, most of our appointments available to online scheduling. A robust set of provider communication capabilities where patients can request and and receive medication refills and communicate with their uh, their providers electronically, and then uh, we've we've espoused the open notes capability within Epic, where patients can actually see you know all of the information and learn more about their own conditions and correct the record uh, for us when uh, when they see uh, that, that it's inaccurate. But the more exciting thing I think, and and maybe a differentiator for Ochsner has been. In, in the chronic disease, the management of common chronic diseases, where we've built a, su- a suite of digital programs to manage chronic diseases, frankly, remotely. And we've built those programs in hypertension and diabetes and COPD and asthma. Uh, and really what that, what that allows for is um, a, a set of digital monitoring capabilities to connect patients to a care team that's led by a PharmD who's working under a collaborative practice agreement with our primary care physicians, supported by a group of health coaches to really interact with patients around their blood pressure, their blood sugar, or their spirometry measure, and use evidence-based care guidelines to titrate medications, to send reminders, to send questionnaires, uh, to create um, a stickiness uh, and a more frequent set of touches with these patients and allow these patients to actually, you know, achieve better outcomes for their chronic disease without having to actually see a provider um, in person. That's been a, a real change in how we've approached common chronic diseases, and our Medicare uh, uh, populations have certainly uh, benefited from those programs as well. Now, we started the discussion mentioning Medicare, and you also referenced the changes going on with the Medicare ACO program. What is your transition to the Pathways to Success program? Has it happened? Are you still preparing for it? So last year we had moved uh, to track one plus, so we were exposed to some downside risk. Um, we did move to the enhanced track um, this year, so we, you know, we are taking uh, more risk, and I think you know that's you know we're emboldened, feeling a little bit emboldened by our our, our success, and so I did move into the enhanced track uh, now, and we're anxious to evaluate. Uh, the final rules and regulations related to the direct contracting model to see if that might even be uh, a better model once uh, once uh, CMMI and uh, you know HHS released those. So we are we are now you know believing that we can be successful taking risk uh, in a Medicare uh, um, population and uh, look forward um, to uh, moving deeper and deeper uh, that way as the opportunities arise. 
To learn more about Ashner, visit their partner page on AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.